LA is vast, vibrant, simultaneously stunning as well as challenging and confusing. At Together LA, this city is our passion. We know that loving LA well starts with listening. Pounding the pavement in search of the individuals invested in the flourishing of Los Angeles. These are the inspiring stories and real-life interviews with the men and women who work to bring the gospel to LA in their unique ways. Thanks for joining us as we bring you closer to the heart of LA, one story, one voice, and one neighborhood at a time. This is the Together LA Listening Tour. Well, hello, everyone. Good afternoon, and welcome to Together LA's podcast, The Listening Tour. Today, I get a chance to talk with somebody brand new who I'm just getting to know, who you will hear from here, especially in written form, Kevin Nye over in LA. So Kevin, where are you in LA right now? Yeah, I I live in Glendale. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Pasadena as well because I went to Fuller Seminary um, and I work in Hollywood, uh, Hollywood, the neighborhood, not the industry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What, how would you describe what you do? Because I'm looking at your website, by the way, it's kevinmni.com. And mm-hmm. it tells me that you work at homeless service and advocacy in Los Angeles, graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary. And there's a lot of interesting things about you that we're going to talk about. But what would you say that you do vocationally or as a job? Yeah, so for, for work, um, I work at a service provider called The Center in Hollywood. Uh, we do all types of homeless services. Uh, we're a drop-in center. We do outreach. We do case management, uh, housing. Uh, we have an on-site medical clinic. So kind of the, the full gamut of, of resources for, for people experiencing homelessness in Hollywood. Yeah. How long have uh, you been doing that job for? Yeah. Uh, in July, I will have been there for six years. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, how did that journey start in the area of homelessness? Did, number one, have you always lived in the LA area? And two, how did you get involved in this industry? Yeah. So I grew up in uh, Tempe, Arizona. Um, I went to college in Oklahoma City. So I, I only came out to LA to go to seminary at Fuller. Um, when I finished my MDiv, um, I you know, I was talking with my denomination about kind of what my future held. And uh, there was just, it, it seemed pretty clear between me and the denomination that I didn't have a future in, in pastoral ministry. And so I, yeah, there's a whole story that, that could go there. But um, ultimately, I, I was still a person of faith. I, I wanted to live that, that faith out and specifically the, um, the, the call, the call to, you know, um, live in solidarity with those on the margins and living in LA, like you can't go far without realizing homelessness is really the big, the big issue we face as a city, as a County. And so, um, vocationally, I wanted to kind of get my hands dirty. Um, and so I, that's the field I went into. Yeah. Putting your church ministry training eyes on it as you look at some of the root problems of homelessness, what are some of the problems that you see from your lens? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that uh, that's what's become my work that uh, you see on my website, right? That I'm writing a book and that I write a lot of pieces about the intersections of faith and homelessness because I just... I kept seeing over and over again as I was learning 
you know, causes of homelessness, but also best practices for, for ending it. I just kept seeing resonances with faith. Um, but at the same time, I also saw a lot of the kind of ideological obstacles to ending homelessness being deeply ingrained in, in people of faith and faith communities. And what I mean by that is uh, real myths around, around poverty, around homelessness that are, um, are rooted in our American culture more broadly, but really um, have taken root in um, especially white evangelical circles. Yeah. Um, namely the belief that people who are poor or who are experiencing homelessness for some reason uh, deserve that, deserve that poverty, deserve to be um, sleeping outside. Um, that, that myth and that ideology is really, really uh, ingrained in churches. And, and so that, that really motivated me to try to put, um, kind of put my, my MDiv hat back on a little bit and put it in yeah. conversation with, with homelessness. Got it. Got it. Got it. And so even I, I'm looking at it, your book, new book that coming up, which by the way, when is it coming out? Grace can lead us home, a Christian call mm -hmm. to end homelessness. When is that book being released? Uh, it comes out August 9th. Um, it's available for pre-order already, but yeah, August 9th is the, the release date for it. Got it. And the whole idea, I'm reading your uh, introduction, is reporting back the stories, experiences, and education you received during your time working homeless in your uh, services. Kevin introduces readers to the crises met in tents, shelters, drop-in centers. Talk to me a little bit about that. Give me a preview of the book. Sure. Yeah, so ultimately going up against this ideology of you know, deservedness, that, that people who are poor experiencing homelessness deserve it for some reason. I try to counter that with a theology of grace, which says that it doesn't matter what we deserve or, um, you know, the, the very heart of Christianity is that we don't get what we deserve. We get God's grace instead. Uh, and so if we are to believe that and we are to live that out, then this whole conversation we're trying to have around poverty and whether or not we should help people because, you know, whether they've done something to to fall into poverty or poverty is some kind of moral failing, which I believe is a myth. And I try to discredit that in the book. But more importantly, it just doesn't matter. Um, like like God, we, we are we are called to offer uh, grace and, and good things to people, regardless of of what we think they deserve. Uh, and so ultimately in the book, I try to dispel a lot of myths around homelessness. I try to tell a lot of stories. I do kind of address the the different intersections of homelessness that that come up when you have the conversation right. So, uh, for me, homelessness is is a crisis of housing. Uh, we, in our bigger cities, uh, especially Los Angeles, are in a major housing crisis that drives homelessness. That's it's a direct and studyable, well studied link um, that a lot of people try to argue against, but is just true based on the fact that where rents are out of control, homelessness follows. Um, I also, I make the case that homelessness is a crisis of, of isolation and community. Um, but I, I say that as simply as saying that, uh, you know, if I were to lose my income and my job and all of my financial resources tomorrow, I would not sleep on the street because 
of my community and my connections. I have family that would take me in. I have friends that would take me in. The, the steps that it would take for me to sleep on the sidewalk would mean not just the loss of my tangible resources, but also I would have to burn a lot of bridges. I would have to lose a lot of connection, right? Um, and I think that, so when we do see homelessness and we do see people sleeping outside, we need to recognize that there's not just a housing issue there, but there's also an issue of, of isolation and connection. Um, I go on in the book also to talk about mental health and how, um, how our mental health system has in many ways failed and, and made homelessness worse. Um, I talk about substance use and addiction and how that interacts with homelessness. Um, in those couple chapters, I'm really, I'm doing a lot of kind of myth busting because I think there's often a, um, a misunderstanding of how those are connected, right? They think a lot of people would think that or perpetuate the myth that everyone who's, you know, sleeping outside is on drugs or is mentally ill or both. Um, and so I try to kind of dispel that myth while also kind of telling the truth about why, why do we have that myth? What is true about that and what can and should be done um, about that intersection? Yeah, yeah. What is happening to address the problem that in your mind is, Tommy, that's effective. What this business is doing is very effective. What this church is doing is effective. What this program is effective. What are you seeing that's been effective? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not just me. There's been research for decades on this. The uh, housing first as a methodology is what works. And when it's practiced uh, well and practiced fully um, and faithfully, that, that it works. And housing first is simply the idea that if we offer people apartments of their own uh, with leases, uh, that it ends homelessness, that a home ends homelessness. It sounds so simple, <laughs> right? Um, but it's it's really the solution that when we have apartments to give people um, and then we have optional services to offer them that actually meet their needs after housing has already been in place, uh, that people flourish, people do well, people stay in housing, they don't return to the streets. Um, and it does, it costs money, right? We're leasing apartments and uh, but ultimately, uh, anytime it's been carefully studied, especially with those who experience chronic homelessness and who are people who end up in emergency rooms and in jails a lot, uh, communities actually save money by just housing people uh, rather than allowing them to remain on the streets uh, and using emergency services constantly. For a church, if a church pastor sitting there listening to it, they say, Kevin, our church has limited budget in terms of what we want to do mm -hmm. for missions. What is a tangible thing that we could do? Yeah. Yeah, this is something I get to in the book. And it's it's really, it's interesting because you, you have to talk about homelessness on this big macro level, right? Like housing policy, yeah. mental health policy. Uh, but also you have to talk about it in extremely local settings. And the thing that I encourage right, churches right. to do most of all is to simply get to know their unhoused neighbors. Uh, treat treat Got the it. people who are living in tents in your neighborhood as the same way that you would treat uh, people who yeah. are living in houses in your neighborhood as a church. Like consider them part of your parish. Uh, consider them part of 
your your mission and not not in a kind of condescending way but you know i think we're so accustomed to when a new encampment pops up to think like oh no they're they're here <laughs> right instead of uh oh we have some new neighbors that have moved in let's go get to know them um i think that something that churches have a really unique opportunity to do is to hold hold space for people. And when I say space, I mean, actual literal physical space, you know, churches that have access to buildings that aren't being used, you know, 24 seven, um, I think can do a lot of good work just by opening their doors to people. Um, something that we're seeing across the country, especially in LA and New York and kind of the Pacific Northwest is a move toward criminalization of homelessness of, um, anti-sleeping, anti-tent measures that that really just make the existence of living without a home a, a criminal behavior, right? Um, and I think churches that, that have minimal budgets or who are maybe involved in this work in some way, whether it's doing like a, a food pantry or um, drop-in, can, can consider opening their doors a little more and just allowing people to to come in and hang out and that can be around a meal it can be around some kind of service but uh, something i point out in the book is that you know the the church is is called to be community right the the word we get church from is the greek word koinonia which is just the greek word for community um, community is at the heart of everything we do but so often when we do ministries for people experiencing homelessness we don't do the community piece. Um, we do like uh, like an assembly line, like <laughs> come through, get your meal, and get on your way. Um, I think if we if we thought of our our ministry to to the unhoused the same way that we would think of like our a singles ministry or um, a young adults ministry, and actually inviting people into space and building community, uh, I think that could go a really long way because the way to end homelessness is to learn the needs of your unhoused neighbors and then to figure out how to meet them. Like the church may not be the one able to meet those resources financially, uh, but they can be the ones in community and in solidarity with the people to learn what those needs are and then to advocate for them. All right, so Kevin, let me ask you a quick question because you're the expert and I'm not. A pastor sitting there, a church, a business leader, marketplace leaders, and they'll say to you, Kevin, let me play devil's advocate. I don't know how to work with boundaries a lot of times. If I open up my church, if I open up my center and allow people to come in, will I be prone to danger? Will I be prone to people taking advantage of us a lot of times? How do I set boundaries? How do I work with them? What would you say to me? Yeah, I mean, I would I would agree with you, not in the sense that, um, you know, unhoused people are inherently dangerous or or risky. I mean, un, unhoused people are far more likely to be the victims of crime than the perpetrators of it. Um, at the same time, what you're talking about is a population that has immense need, uh, and that yeah, uh, and that we've structured a society where they aren't able to get what they need through traditional means, right? Uh, and so when we say uh, that, you know, if we do this, we might get taken advantage of, I, I think 
I would agree with that in as long as we can all agree that we are putting people in a position where any of us would push those boundaries, right? That if it were me uh, living on the streets and somebody was offering to help that I might, I, I would also be the one to push and see how far <laughs> that yeah. help could go. Right. Um, and, and I think that boundaries are crucial. Boundaries is the first thing that, that I train any new employee on uh, because people who want to help, people who understand themselves as helpers are inherently bad at boundaries, right? Uh, and we cannot do any of this work if we don't have boundaries. Uh, the way I teach it at the center is that you have to learn what to say no to or else you won't be able to say yes to anything, right? If you say yeah, yes to everything, yeah. then you're essentially saying saying no to everything. It's the it's the same thing. Uh, and so, yeah, I would encourage, you know, draw strict boundaries. And, and every time that I've put boundaries in place uh, with people experiencing homelessness, I've I've very rarely met been been met with hostility or or anger or resentment. It's it's just very clear. This this is what I can offer you. This is what I can't. As long as those boundaries are in place ahead of time and aren't being, you know, implemented in the moment and on a whim, then, um, that I've, I've always had a lot of success with that. Yeah. Yeah. Now in terms of, is, is it job creation that we need to look at? Is that what a lot of times they would probably need, uh, for people to help out to create some of those jobs or is there another solution that we need to do to help lift some of these guys out of poverty? You mentioned, Hey, you got to provide them homes. Now is the next step helping them with providing jobs? I mean, it's different for everybody. I mean, I, the majority of my work has been with uh, people who are experiencing what we call chronic homelessness, um, which is people who have been homelessness for, for a while. Um, and yeah. typically that over that overlaps with, with severe disability or severe uh, substance use disorders and, uh, yeah. Essentially, a, a lot of the people that I work with are people who are not going to re-enter the workforce, and I think, I think there's a, a degree, um, there's a, a portion of the population that we just need to get comfortable with that. Um, okay. I think we need, we do need to like, uh, we kind of need to check ourselves a little bit with this idea, because again, a lot of times at the root of that question is, okay, but they have to earn it. Right. We can help them, but they have to earn they have to right. earn it and they have to earn it in really traditional, like capitalistic ways. They have to prove their worth through their ability to generate yeah. like value in the marketplace. Right. And uh, at the same time, there's a huge portion of the unhoused population that wants to work. Uh, there's a huge pop portion that already is working uh, and there just is there aren't enough hours. The pay isn't high enough. Um, to, to lift them out of poverty, right? Um, and honestly, the one of the largest growing populations uh, of amongst homelessness, and this is going to get a lot worse as eviction moratoriums and coming out of COVID, uh, is our seniors. Yeah. Um, we're seeing really? so many, yeah, so many seniors, many of whom worked their entire lives and are now on you know fixed income from retirement pension. Uh, and rent, rent is just getting above what they can afford. Um, I tell a story in my book of the, the day that I met, met uh, an 89-year-old uh, at our gate who came because 
he was about to experience homelessness for the first time. His building had got bought about four years ago and they'd been steadily raising the rent. Uh, and he worked his entire adult life. He never married, so he never had kids. It was just him by himself. And the building he lived in for 30 years, he was about to get evicted and had no, no chance of affording an apartment in, in the current rental market. And, and he did everything right, you know, and I, I think that's what's, that's what's ultimately so frustrating about this narrative of, you know, you just, if you get a good job, you work hard, you're going to be fine. Like that's, yeah. that's a promise that we've, that we've made to generations of people that is ultimately it's, it's becoming a lie for so many. Yeah. Yeah. How do you then help out? And look, Kevin, thanks for allowing me to ask all these naive questions on this part, uh, on this interview. How do you course, help out the seniors? So, uh, like your friend, the 89 year old guy, how, how do we nationally help out with those guys? Because it's not like they could get a job. It, right. A lot of times you're not sure about insurance or anything like that. Is there anything that people who are listening to this, churches or individuals, can tangibly help out with this particular individual? Yeah, I mean, so in the moment, by the time that it gets there, I mean, we we can offer assistance, we can offer, uh, you know, housing vouchers, but we have to have enough of those to go around and we just don't, we never have. Um, I think on the macro scale, that's where we need to start talking about, uh, you know, curtailing rent. Uh, I mean, we, we, we have to talk about how how much of the market of apartments and affordable apartments are being bought up, not by ma and pa landlords, but by huge corporations and, and not yeah. just American corporations, but overseas corporations uh, who are, who are. Oh, turning, I totally agree with that. Most yeah, yeah. Especially in LA. Yeah. And, and so we're, we're allowing, I mean, as, as a country, we're allowing, you know, uh, rival countries to exploit yep. our our low income renters for for rent and and it's causing homelessness it's causing uh it's causing a majority of of renters to spend more than 50 percent on yep. on rent like it's it's out of control we we have to regulate this you know housing housing cannot be a commodity that that is used to generate you know billionaires and billion dollar corporations yeah. you know yeah oh kevin let me just tell you i mean even the story is not just la i go to nairobi quite a lot in nairobi a lot of times whatever you see you see brand new roads you see brand new highways expressways overpasses airports buildings everything all funded by the chinese and a lot of times corruption is at all-time high so as a result the chinese comes in they say to the government officials you will provide jobs. We'll provide local jobs and we'll give you personally five to a, a certain amount for you to give us this contract. Well, eventually that particular government official gets wealthy off this. You now have bought the land. And after three, four years, then you're sitting there, you know what? We're done. We're going to bring in our local folks. The lo uh, mm -hmm. uh, We'll bring in the folks from China. The local folks says, you can't do that. Well, you got to stop me because what else are you going to do? Or a lot of times right. they do these lease rates that, hey, if you can't pay these lease rates and initially the first couple of years are very low, but then it becomes really high. If you can't do it, then we take over the land. 
And so you're beginning to see even countries in Africa where their lands are completely taken away from them. Yeah. I mean, we've as recently as the last five years seen L.A. City Council members get get caught in huge corruption scandals that that involve mm. housing developers. You know, like this Correct. is it's 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 a huge problem. And, and so often we act like these issues are not connected, that homelessness, you know, everyone likes to talk about homelessness is a mental health crisis. And yes, there there is overlap with the state of our mental health system that that causes and exacerbates homelessness. But fundamentally, homelessness is a housing issue. Uh, in states where housing is more affordable, homelessness is lower. And that's not because people don't have mental illness in Alabama or Mississippi, right? <laughs> people have mental illness in those states. People have substance yeah. use addictions in those states. But what they also have is the ability to still pay rent at the end of the month, yeah. despite those things. Um, the safety net is enough. The support from family is enough that they can still pay rent. in In Los Angeles, if you if you have schizophrenia, uh, like if you've if you've done every if you have schizophrenia and you've done everything right, you've gone to the Department of Mental Health, you've got your disability certified, and you get you can get up to twelve hundred a month from disability social security. What's that going to get you? <laughs> you you can't get a studio yeah. for that in Los Angeles. Yeah, so yeah. we we talk about, you know, it being a mental health crisis, you know, and I'll, I'll I'll talk all day about the failures of our mental health system, but at the end of the day, uh if people can't afford the rent, they're going to sleep in a tent. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Kevin, and you mentioned one thing in which I I'm just not familiar. What is a housing voucher? Yeah, so a housing voucher is um, essentially uh, your a person is a person or a family is matched to um, to a subsidy from either the federal government. Most of them are federal, but some of them kind of exist on city and county levels too, uh, where uh, the government subsidizes your rent. Um, the most the most typical version of that is that the government pays for um, for your entire rent, uh, after a third of your income is contributed. So, uh, for mm. people who, so for example, you, the, the person I just named, uh, the hypothetical person with schizophrenia who gets 1200 a month, they would contribute $400 a month. That would be their rental payment. And the government, if the person has this voucher will contribute the rest of the cost of rent. Um, God, it, and God, we have God, those God. and we have a good number of people on them. Um, but we need way, way more. And then on top of that, we need landlords who will accept those vouchers. Um, uh, okay. And actually, depending on where you live, it's actually illegal to refuse a Section 8 voucher. However, it still happens all the time because it's one of those what it's it's a non-enforced law. Uh, and landlords hold so much power in who they can choose to rent that they can say, oh, I actually I accepted this person because they applied first uh, or I accepted this person for this reason, not because you're a Section 8. Yeah, got it, got it. Now, Kevin, a lot of times, and this is where you're going to write a series of blogs for us to do some research for us. With the Olympics coming in purely 
LA does not want to make it seem to the rest of the world they have this problem that they can't handle. What are they doing about mm -hmm. it to clean it up? Yeah. So, and this is something that, you know, advocates and, and nonprofits in LA have been aware of ever since, you know, 2014 when we won the bid for, um, for the Olympics in 2028, that we were, we were going to be moving to try to address homelessness. Right. And yeah, grant granted, there's a lot of different ways to address homelessness because ultimately when we're talking about addressing homelessness from the perspective of LA for the Olympics, what they really mean is making homelessness not visible. Right. Um, and there's, there's good and bad ways to do that. You know, you don't, you don't want to drive down six in San Pedro and see, see tents and people languishing on the streets. What are you going to yeah. do? You can do that responsibly and work with everybody compassionately, move them toward sustainable housing, get their lives flourishing and, and well, or you can criminalize the streets and force people into, into shelters, into, um, essentially internment, right? Uh, and there's a whole spectrum of things in between those two. And I would say that for the last, for the last, let's say 20, 2015 to 2020 or so, we were doing it the right way, but we didn't have the housing um, to it. actually put people in. So things got stuck. Uh, we were spending more money than ever on case management, on housing navigation, on outreach teams, on on medical care for people. Uh, but we ultimately we we did not have, and we still do not have the apartments at the end for people. Um, and so now, what we're looking at is that 2028 date gets closer, and we hosted the Super Bowl, and LA is getting more in the limelight, what we're seeing is politicians give up on that method uh, and largely push for shelters, um, congregate settings, kind of newer innovations like tiny sheds, um, tiny home villages that are meant to yeah. be, be temporary shelter. Um, we're building those and, and politicians are getting a lot of credit because they're saying, look, we're doing something about homelessness but they're all just temporary holding places for housing Correct. that's not coming. And so yeah. what we're doing is we're, we're leaning on the language of compassion, but we're forcing people into places that they don't really want to go just to get them out of the public eye. And what we're doing on the back end is anytime, uh, I, this, this is kind of the, the step process right now. City council person, has an encampment that they want to get rid of. That's an eyesore for a business or a community who's wealthy says, I don't want this encampment here anymore. City council person will build somewhere in that zip code, preferably out of the way under an overpass behind a huge fence. They'll build some kind of shelter. Uh, then they will offer that shelter to that encampment and say, hey, all of you, do you want to move into here? A lot of times the answer is no, because they have are more restricted, less freedom, lower quality of life in those shelters. But when they say no, city council then approves that that encampment, that particular intersection, is now a criminalized zone that you cannot sleep there overnight.
Mm. And so people are forced to choose, do I go to the shelter that I don't want to go to, or do I have to completely relocate, move to a new community or risk being ticketed and eventually arrested? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin, I've learned so much from you, especially about the homelessness situation in L.A. Never thought that we would be where we are right now. And my concern is even with L.A., we're coming up with these temporary solutions that people come in. Wow, look at L.A. and all the other stuff. And next thing you know, they leave and we're back to normal again. Mm -hmm. Or you look at somewhere like Singapore. When I go there to Singapore, the streets are clean. There's no traffic, everything. And you're sitting there. Where are the homeless people around there? They build walls to hide people in order for them to create an impression that everything looks good, but everything is just a masquerade of what your bigger problem is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I fear that that's where we're headed. Um, it, it felt like we were moving in the right direction for for a while, and now we're we're really going backwards. And it's it's such yeah. a shame because um, we, we never really gave we never really gave it a fair shot to work because we never yeah we didn't we didn't invest in the housing fast enough yeah you know we're gonna have a lot of conversations i know you're gonna be doing a series of different research on me uh hey before we go i, I gotta ask you i mean one of the things i also noticed is that you are a contributing author for the theology and the marvel universe talk to me a little mm, bit about yeah. that and what that is about and this whole idea of theology and marvel universe and all of that stuff Sure. Yeah. I mean, for my whole life, I've been a movie guy. I've loved movies. My mom says that my first word besides mama and dada was video. Uh, and at the same time, I grew up reading Marvel comics, huge Spider-Man, X-Men fan. Yeah. And and so, yeah, when the, when the Marvel universe started with Iron Man, you know, I was, I was pretty, pretty hooked in and, and just like with homelessness, just like with anything, I've always got my theological, pastoral hat on and, and thinking through like, but what are these movies about? What do they, you know, what are they reflecting on that also has some, you know, theological intersection. And, um, and so I, I would do movie reviews and stuff on my blog and I've, I've done a bunch of different iterations of that. Uh, but then, yeah, this, uh, this book series was coming out through Roman and Littlefield where they were doing theology and pop culture stuff. And they wanted to do a volume on, theology in the Marvel universe. So I, I submitted a proposal to write a chapter about uh, the movie Thor Ragnarok uh, and yeah. to, put it in to put it in conversation with uh, post-colonial theology and the work of uh, Willie Jennings. And it got, it got picked up and it's in the book. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Very, very good. Out of all of the movies, who is your favorite character and what is your favorite movie? Is it the Iron Man series? Is it the Captain America? Is it the Thor series? That's that's tough. I mean, I think because I'm I'm also I'm one of those rare people that also loves, you know, like art house cinema and then and loves the blockbuster type stuff. Yeah. Um, so when I'm looking at it through that lens, I think that, you know, something like like Black Panther is one of the most mature uh, thematic mm -hmm. movies that the MCU has ever made. And um, I, I think it's such a good film. I think if you were to ask me just on a random like Saturday afternoon, what movie I would want to throw on and potentially like nap during uh, it would probably be Captain America, the winter soldier. I think that's such yeah. a, such yeah. an interesting movie thematically, but also just a ton of fun. 
Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I like I like all of them. Um, not all the same. I mean, I'm a huge Spider-Man fan, but I don't yeah. uh, I I don't consider the the MCU Spider-Man movies to be like my definitive version of the character. Um, but I still enjoy them. Yeah. You look at Captain America and then Winter Soldier and later on with Civil War as well, too, is Hydra here was in plain sight this whole time working beneath everything. But then later on with Civil War, you had to reveal your identities with the Sokovia, uh, Sokovia uh, courts. And those were two mm -hmm. very interesting themes that you had to wrestle with. Yeah, I mean, the Winter Soldier, I mean, this is a like a 20... 14 2013 movie that was about how you know when when we as a nation are afraid uh and put that fear external how yeah. in the midst of that fascism can show up looking like freedom and and destroy Correct. us all right <laughs> and then what and then like what a prediction of what was going to happen in america <laughs> for the next decade right like i, I think it's such, such a such a well thought out idea and i love that it's sort of done as like a a spy movie a la like the manchurian yeah. candidate kevin as i talk with you for the together la we're going to have to have you come on and do some movie reviews or even do some write-ups of movie reviews you gave me a bunch of different ideas for us to work together in the future i'd love that yeah. Uh, Kevin, where can people find you at? Yeah. So on social media, uh, I'm most active on Twitter um, at Kevin M. Nye one there. I didn't quite get to the at Kevin M. Nye tag first. So I had to put a one on there. Uh, I'm the same on Instagram, um, on Facebook at Kevin M. Nye. Uh, and my website is Kevin M. Got it. Got it. Random question. And I hope that you, uh, I'm not out of place. Do people tease you or do people ask every if you're in, uh, you're uh, related to the science guy? All the time. I, I don't mind it. I think he's a pretty cool dude. Uh, I am not related in any way that I'm aware. There's no relation. Okay, uh, got it. No, and I've not met him either, which is a huge bummer. I feel like we'd have we'd have that to talk about. Got it. Well, thank you very much. KevinMNye.com is his website and Kevin M. Nye, number one. You can follow him on social media as well, too. So, Kevin, thank you so much. And you're going to be, uh, we're going to be continuing to really use some of your stuff and profiling you across all of our Together LA network. So, I am so glad that we had a chance to connect. Same. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm excited to, to keep partnering. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Together LA listening tour. To stay connected, Make sure you subscribe to the Together LA channel, rate and review this episode, and make sure to share on your social media platforms. We would love for you to follow along with Together LA on Instagram, Facebook, and our website at www.togetherla.net. See you next time.